We're going to be talking, if you have your Bibles with you, and uh, we're going to be talking from the Paul's letter, Second uh, Timothy. It's his second letter to Timothy. Uh, if you uh, have your Bible, you can turn there. This is an interesting letter for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is it's the last letter of Paul that we know about or that we have in our Bible before uh, he died. And it's written in awareness of his forthcoming death. And very similar in some ways to the second letter of Peter a little bit, uh, because that is also written in the awareness of, the, of Peter's uh, forthcoming death. They both were martyred for their faith in Rome, and both of them write these letters, and so it has that kind of feel of a last will and testament. It's something that they want to write. They, these two letters are saying something I really need to pass on, uh, to communicate, to make sure happens before I pass away. And, and so that gives them an urgency, and it all gives, it gives them an interesting character. And one of the things that's common to both 2 Timothy and 2 Peter is this idea of reminder or memory. That is, both letters are in, uh, repeatedly say, don't forget this, remember this, remember this. You know, basically saying, after I've gone, here's some things you really must not forget. Because Paul is very concerned, as Peter is concerned when he writes his, his, his second letter, Paul is very concerned that the mission that he's founded, if you like, the church, churches that he has established, the ministry that's been flourishing among the Gentile peoples uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean, is very concerned that this doesn't just all fade away to nothing. He wants it to flourish. And so today we're going to be talking about what makes the difference between a fading church and a flourishing church. Between a fading church and a flourishing church. And Paul is basically giving us some tremendous clues here as to what it looks like to fade and what it looks like to flourish. And uh, the difference is really memory. Memory. If we remember certain things, we're going to flourish. If we forget, we're going to fade away. We remember or forget. So, let's start at the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, the beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Typical Pauline greeting from a, from a you know, letter uh, with the addition of the word mercy. Most of Paul's greetings are grace and peace. Uh, you know, uh, and then he adds this one mercy in here. And, uh, and so it's not just a, a formula. It's a blessing that he's praying for. And, uh, and so he then he says, I give thanks to God whom I serve, he said, uh, with a clear conscience, as did my forefathers. And so, uh, as unceasingly, he says, constantly, I remember about you in my prayers, night and day. So Paul is constantly praying for Timothy, even night and day. He's remembering him. And when he remembers him, 
He prays for him. He remembers him, and so he prays for him. And one of the see, it's not enough simply to remember the good old days. It's not enough, even though memory is important, like I've been saying, memory in itself is not necessarily transformational. Memory will keep something alive in your mind, but Paul says, I turn my memories into prayer. He turns his memories into prayer. So it's possible even to be a church that remembers what God has done in the past and yet because and we don't we never we don't experience it in the present because we don't turn our memory into prayer. And he remembers Timothy night and day and unceasingly he's praying for him and, and he's longing to see this is a long to see you, remembering your tears, that I may be filled with joy, he says in verse 4, 2 Timothy 1. Well, that's interesting. I remember your tears, Timothy. I want to be filled with joy. <laughs> a little bit of an interesting contrast there, a bit of irony perhaps. What's the point? What were what, what Timothy's tears? Presumably this is the last time they met and a tearful farewell. Paul is now writing from prison in Rome. And he is saying to Timothy, I remember your tears the last time we met. Perhaps Timothy was there when Paul was arrested and taken to Rome. We don't know that. That's a possibility. Uh, but later on in the letter, Paul tells Timothy, could you get my coat from Troas, you know, which is across the sea? Uh, from uh, from Rome and in, in fact it's across the Aegean and the Adriatic seas and bring it to Rome and bring some books that I left and some parchment so Paul must have left in a hurry when he got when he left Troas and ended up in Rome perhaps that's where he was arrested we don't know but in any event it was a tearful farewell but the thought of the reunion brings him great joy so I want to see you again. And uh, and so later in the letter he says, you know, bring, bring my stuff that I left behind. But he says, I... So he remembers Timothy's tears. He remembers him constantly in prayer. He remembers his tears. And he remembers Timothy's faith. So... He says, I'm reminded of your sincere, but unhypocritical faith that first was in your mother, grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And now, he says, I'm, I'm confident, dwells also in you. So the important thing about Timothy, you know, it was one thing to remember him in prayer, that's important. He remembers, him, he remembers his tears, but the key thing here, he remembers his faith. And so all of this is building up to Paul saying something to Timothy. I'm, he's saying, I'm remembering. I'm remembering you in my prayers. I'm remembering our relationship, your tears. I remember your faith. I remember the faith of your mother, your grandmother. And uh, he says, 
So then he says, I'm going to remind you about something. Here's something I want you to remember. And here's the first thing really that it made the difference, it makes a distinction between a fading church and a flourishing church. All right. There's one other stage, right? In, in this letter, Paul mentions not just the idea, the potential of fading or flourishing, but he also mentions the idea of a faithless church that really gives up on Jesus. That's that's the horror. That's you know that's the potential. But uh, here he says, I want to remind you to rekindle the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now we don't know exactly what gift it was uh, that God gave to Timothy when Paul laid hands on him. We don't know, he doesn't actually say, but it needs relighting, rekindling if you like. It's like a fire when it gets low and all you've got is a few embers there and it's not, not really burning. You need to rekindle that, you need to light it up again. And so Timothy had a gift and he's it appears, if we read between the lines, that he's let it go. God gave him something, and it's on the, definitely on the back burner, maybe not even a light. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says something very similar. This is the second time he's had to say this. Second, 1 Timothy 4, 14, Do not neglect the gift which is in you, which is given to you, he said, uh, through prophecy, with the laying on of hands of the eldership. 1 Timothy 4.14 So this is a kind of, perhaps it's a reference here to the same event. Maybe Paul and a group of elders had laid hands on Timothy and... Uh, and so, and, and there was a prophecy, and something was spoken. God gave somebody something to tell Timothy, uh, which was, you know, this is a gift you're receiving. Uh, we don't, you know, there's some things that are we're not told, but it was certainly a spiritual event, laying on of hands. Uh, prophecy was involved, and the gift was received. The problem for Timothy is having to be told twice. Rekindle that gift. Don't neglect. God can give you something, but you can put it in a drawer and forget about it. He can give you something to do. He can give you a ministry. He can give you a gift. He can give you a focus. He can give you his Holy Spirit's power in certain dimensions, and you let it go. You leave it behind. It needs to be rekindled, relit. This is the difference between fading and flourishing, right? Fading church forgets the gifts of God, forgets the gifts of the Spirit. It, and a flourishing church remembers its anointing and rekindles the gifts it has been given. And Paul says in verse 7, for he said, God has not given to us a spirit of fear, or timidity perhaps in some translations, Greek word delirium but of power and of love and of self-control. He's not talking about, when he says he hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but he's given you a spirit of power, love and self-control. 
That's not talking about anything other than the Holy Spirit. In a, with a, just a, from a certain point of view. Right? It's not like there's a special spirit of power that comes onto someone that's different from a spirit of something else. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit. Just like in John, uh, uh, in, the, in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth. And in various places in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is given a name or a title according to whatever dimension the author is wanting to communicate of the Spirit's work. So, if for John, he's the Spirit of Truth. For Paul here, he's the Spirit of power and love and self-control. In other words, that's what the Spirit is characterized by. Well, that's what he does. And it's the difference between fear and power, right? The spirit of fear or the spirit of power and love and self-control. Those things, that's what the spirit gives. A fading church fears all sorts of things. A flourishing church remembers the gifts that God has given you and rekindles them. It doesn't let them fade away. So this this points these these passages actually point to some interesting spiritual dynamics. I think here is Timothy who has received a gift. We don't know what is, the name of that gift is, but we it, it might have something to do with the power, love, and self control that's mentioned here. But he's received a gift in the very act of someone laying hands on him, or a council of elders, a Paul the apostle laying hands on him and prophesying over him, would you believe? Well, it's in the Bible, right? And that's how he received a gift. And even with that dynamic introduction to some area of his ministry, nevertheless, he's managed to neglect it. And it needs to be revitalized, needs to be recaptured and rekindled and lit up. So my challenge, one of my challenges this morning to you is what are the things in my life or in your life that God has given you that need to be recaptured and rekindled and revived. What gifts and areas of court ministry or things that God has given you to do have been let slide, have been neglected and let faded, whether as an individual or as a church? And that's something, that's a question I can't answer for you, but you have, I think it's something that the, this text leads points to us and says ask answer this one what is it that you've let slide and let go that really god gave you already and don't be afraid because if you're afraid that's not the spirit's work right that's another spirit god has not given you a spirit of fear of power and love and self-control. I love how those three things go together, right? It's different between fear and power is a tremendous difference, but the power is, God's power is always brought together with God's love and with self-control. It's not, God's power is not uncontrolled. It is, it, it is not self-centered. It's, it's, it's given to just demonstrate and to and to bring in to demonstrate God's love and to enact the love of God 
That's the good power of God. Don't be afraid of the power of God. It's full of love. Amen? When God answers prayer, this, I mean, sometimes it can be pretty scary, but guess what? There's love in it. And he is a God of love, so as well as power. And, it's, and guess what? The gifts of God are always able to be operated with self-control. Just like in 1 Corinthians 14 and so on, when Paul's talking about gifts in the church at Corinth, and he says there uh, that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, meaning uh, if you have a gift from God, it's not something that you just, is totally out of your control, that just comes upon you and it's totally out of control, it's something actually you just have self-control over which of course is good because it means it's not just taking you over in some odd way. But it's also unfortunate because it means you have the power to neglect it, whatever God has given you. And so a challenge from this text is to re renew and rekindle the gift of God. Um, and, and don't be afraid. And so then he says, so he says, if that's the case, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, neither of me, his prisoner, but join in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. You know, it's, it's, by the way, it's wonderful to come to a church where you're celebrating the missions and praying for missionaries. Uh, and, and I think that's brilliant. As a, as a missionary myself, I always love to find a church where You've got a mission heart. But listen, uh, there's all sorts of things happening in this world, and even in our culture, in this country, and in this place, in this state, uh, which are going, which are working against bold proclamation of the gospel, bold proclamation of Christ. We've always been told to shut up. I know that compared to many countries like we were praying for before, there are closed countries, uh, or so-called closed countries, where you know, it's illegal to have a Bible, it's illegal to convert to Christianity, it's illegal to preach the gospel. These things at this point are not illegal in this country. However, there is nevertheless a growing and increasing pressure in this country uh, against Christianity, and I don't expect it to diminish. I think that those pressures are going to increase. And we've got to make sure we maintain our bold witness, not to be ashamed and uh, and even of those who are put in prison for Christ, uh, and uh, but join, be prepared if you like to join in suffering for the gospel. And we do this in the power of God, not in our own strength. A fading church forgets its friends, like Paul, who's in gospel, who is in prison, in prison here. He doesn't want to be forgotten, right? A fading church grows in shame in the gospel and finds all kinds of reasons not to be bold in our proclamation of Jesus. Finds all kinds of reasons to shut up when we're told to shut up and to just be quiet. You know, I grew up in a church in Melbourne, Australia that was, uh, when I was very young, I can remember uh, sitting on the front row, you know, within spitting distance of the preacher there and you know, under the anointing, so to speak. And, uh, and so uh, he was a, you know, a, a literal pulpit thumper. He'd be pounding on the pulpit and sh shouting and all this. And uh, 
But that was, uh, as I got a little bit older, uh, things were changing in that church, and it went more and more away from the gospel, became very what we call liberal in its theology, forgot who they were, and ended up, you know, where it was basically saying, well, as I tell people, there was more, was more, was more poetry in the sermon than Bible. Uh, not against poetry, uh, believe me, but if you've got the balance wrong there. So, and, and so, uh, and it was all basically all roads lead to God, and let's all be a nice people to make the world a better place, and they forgot who they were. In the middle of all that, uh, I gave up on the gospel and on God, and I became a, a pretty uh, committed atheist. And by the time I got to college, I was a pretty zealous atheist, and I went, I was looking for Christians to try to destroy their faith. Uh, that was, of course, a very bad plan for an atheist uh, because you keep meeting Christians. <laughs> and they keep you know, giving you the gospel and loving you even when you win the occasional argument, which I did sometimes. Win the argument, I lost the war because you know, eventually God got a hold of me and I was radically converted. But my church had forgotten the gospel. They'd forgotten uh, and they wanted to fit in so badly with the world around them uh, they changed the name of the church magazine to relevant we better be relevant to the culture and look that's important it's important to somehow communicate to our culture right you've got to identify jesus identified with us became one of us became a human being radical identification with us but also radically different from us amen and if you are radically identified, but you're not different, then you have an audience, but no message. And if you are radically different from the world around you, but you're not identified with them, you're not connected to them, then you have a message, but no audience. Right? You cut off lines of communication. So we've got to be, so it's good, we've got to be both identified with, connected to the culture around us, engage with it but radically different in the gospel so that we can we've got we've both we've both got bridges of communication and we've got something worth saying we've got a message that we can deliver a fading church refuses to suffer for the gospel it forgets the gospel it forgets about what god has already done a flourishing church is bold, unashamed about Christ and about fellow Christians, and it remembers the gospel. Look what Paul says here about the gospel. Be prepared, he says, to suffer for, together for the gospel according to the power of God, who, and now he's going to, in verse 9 and 10, and 9 down to and 10, he's going to describe the gospel. He says, God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus from, uh, from the time of eternity. But was manifested now through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who put death to death or if you like, nullified death, but brought life and immortality to light through 
the gospel. That's the gospel right there. Paul is able to spell it out in two, ver in two verses, the basics of the gospel. And he says, this is what you should not be ashamed of. A fading church is ashamed of the gospel, forgets its roots, and refuses to suffer for the gospel. It forgets what God has done in Christ. A flourishing church is bold and unashamed about Christ and about fellow Christians. It remembers the gospel. Look, let me, let's face it, sometimes, you know, let's be honest, sometimes we get embarrassed by what fellow believers do, right? It's sometimes not easy to identify with other believers, you know, because sometimes they're just a bit cringeworthy. I know, I, I, I'm sure there'll be times when I'm the one that people think is cringeworthy. You know, we've all done, we've all we've also been, we've done that to other people. But, Paul's here saying, don't be ashamed of the gospel, and don't be ashamed of me, he says. Somehow, we bring this together. Now, He said, Paul says in verse 11 here, For this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. Just powering up as many words as he, can, as he can to say, this is what I'm there for, I was appointed for. I was appointed to proclaim it, to initiate it, to teach it. And it says, that's why I'm suffering all these things. So Paul is writing from prison, and telling Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Boldness for the gospel got Paul in prison. That's why he's there. If he'd just gone along with what, what the culture wanted him to and what the Romans wanted him to do, he wouldn't be in prison right now. If he just refused to cause trouble, right? he wouldn't be in prison. And we wouldn't have Second Timothy. And the story would have had a different ending. So, and so notice here, he tells Timothy, uh, you know, that his, he says in verse 12, but I am not ashamed. He's already told him, don't you be ashamed of the gospel. Now he's telling him, I'm not ashamed. He tells Timothy, be prepared to suffer for the gospel together. He says, I'm already suffering for the gospel. Thanks, Tim, Paul says, get on with it, right? I remember you fondly. It, it, I just want to see you. It's going to, I'm looking forward to our reunion. But don't fade. Don't let the, the gospel fade in your life, so that you just become a fade into obscurity. Here, you need to flourish in your faith. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Without a fading church, fears. The culture around the flourishing church holds on to faith and trust in God. Look at verse 12. I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have trusted in. I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have trusted in. You see, if you know who God is, if you understand his character, his nature, you really understand, you get who he is. There's no need to be ashamed of him. All right? Like in Romans 1, 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it works. 
It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jew first and also the, the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, and that's the problem with the Roman churches. They think that there's reason for shame in the gospel. For a couple of things. One is, Christians are suffering, according to chapter 8 of Romans. And how does that, you know, we're supposed to be preaching good news here, and when people get converted, they get persecuted. How does that work? That doesn't sound like much good news. And the gospel is good news for Jews and Gentiles, and yet most Jews, at the time of the writing of Romans, had not believed in the gospel. In fact, Jesus' own people had mostly rejected him, and that doesn't seem right. How could the gospel be good, but Jews not be saved? That doesn't sound right. And Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He really does save Jews and Gentiles. And he spends the rest of the, the letter telling them how exactly that's going to happen. And so Paul is totally convinced of the goodness of God, the character of God, the goodness of the gospel, and it's, he's totally unashamed of it. You see, our biggest spiritual problems come when we don't understand the character of God. We don't know who he truly is. We have a, mis warped, a warped view of his character when we misunderstand what he's really like. If you don't understand his goodness, if you don't understand his righteousness, if you don't understand his holiness, if you don't understand his, his triune nature, Father, Son, and Spirit, all these things, you don't understand him in these ways. To that degree, you've got a weakness in your life that's going to make it harder for you to get through the trials that come along. Paul says to Timothy in verse 13, you have, a, you have a pattern of healthy words which you heard from me in, and uh, he says, you have all this in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul has already said, I'm persuaded that he, that is God, is able to guard my, we'll just call it the word here, paratheke in the Greek, my deposit until that day, or for that day. Now what's this deposit thing? Uh, some translations say God is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. Uh, but I wonder whether actually it's the other way around. That the Greek would allow it to be that which Paul has entrusted to God or that which God has entrusted to Paul. He's able to keep, to guard, if you like, to protect that which Paul has entrusted, which, which Paul has been entrusted with, which is the gospel. God is able to keep it, to protect it. Two verses later, he tells Timothy, verse 14, you guard the good deposit. This deposit is a deposit of truth. This deposit is a deposit of truth. It's what God has given to the church to pass on to the nations and the generations. And it must be done. The gospel is for the nations, horizontal extension, if you like, of, of the kingdom and the gospel is for the generations it has to go down and this is a deposit of truth it's precious that's why i'm teaching seminary professor of new testament well why am i doing this because the gospel has to be passed on both 
in every generation which has to be re-evangelized and for every future generation we've got to keep it going and not fade away we've got to flourish and not fade and so how do we do, how do we defend this gospel how do we protect this truth well paul says first of all god is able to guard it that's verse 12 verse 13 You've got a pattern that I gave you. What I taught you, the healthy words, the sound teaching that you heard from me that are in faith and love in Christ Jesus. You see, teaching, biblical, even if it's good theological truth, without a relationship of faith and love in Christ is just going to be deadly and dry and accomplish little. It's the beauty of, of, of what God has given us. Not just a system of thought it's a life of faith in Christ and love in Christ. Now, so he says, God's able to guard it. You've got it. I've already told you. And 14, he says, you, Timothy, guard this precious or this good deposit. And how is Timothy supposed to do this? Look at the text. Guard this good deposit through the Holy Spirit which dwells among you. And then we already found in verse 12 that God is able to guard it. Now we have, how does God guard it? Through giving the church the Holy Spirit. It's Timothy's command. He says, guard this deposit through the Holy Spirit which is given to you. But the you there is plural in the Greek. Which is given to all of you. Or literally among you is probably a better translation. In other words, Timothy's not on his own. Tim is not on his own in trying to just survive. The Holy Spirit is indwelling him and the church. And God is going to guard his precious deposit of truth. By the way, this kind of guarding does not mean concealing or hiding something. How do you guard the truth of the gospel? Well, the last thing you do is keep it to yourself. Right? You don't protect the gospel by, keep, by putting it in a box and locking it, burying it underground. That's not to protect it. In fact, it'll, you, you'll lose it. You protect the gospel by keep on telling it, by keep on communicating it. Right? You know, in the 19th I'll give you a bit of church history for a moment. In the 19th century, uh, theologically in the Western world, Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, Western countries, saw a huge rise in what we call liberal theology. That is the abandoning of, of, of key aspects of the faith in terms of belief in the Bible, belief in virgin birth, belief in miracles, belief in the resurrection. All these things were coming under attack in theology schools and therefore transmitted to new generations of pastors and ministers. But the 20th century saw some reaction to all of that as God was working to counter this. And there are four reactions that really happened, uh, or five. The first one I want to mention is a mission reaction. Uh, one of the key features in early 20th century church history is a revival of missions. So there's a famous conference in Edinburgh in the first, uh, I think it's 1910, 1912, but there was a famous missions conference which resulted in a huge mission expansion in the early 20th century around the world, right? How do you respond to liberal theology? Preach the gospel in all the nations, right? 
when your church is declining and fading, what do you do? Get out there and preach the gospel. Get out and tell someone about Jesus. The second thing I want to mention is what we call fundamentalism. Fundamentalism was in the early 20th century was a theological reaction to liberal theology in the seminaries where professors said, we've got to recover the truth that the Bible is absolutely true in every respect. And, uh, and we've got to return to the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, and so there, there's two sides to fundamentalism. There's this kind of theological response to saying, let's return to the basics of the faith. And there's a kind of other way of thinking about fundamentalism as, as, uh, as a kind of cultural movement. But this is a, a theological movement. Uh, they re so return to the preaching of the gospel in all the nations. A return to the basics of the faith uh, also, we see in the first decade of the, of the 20th century the rise of Pentecostal Christianity. What's happening there? This is a return. This is a, a, a new appreciation or renewed appreciation of the work of the Holy Spirit. People are saying, you know, we've forgotten the power of God. We've forgotten the gifts of God. That's, we need more of God's power and His gifts among us. That's important. I'm not saying that all fundamentalism and all Pentecostal have always done the right thing. All I'm saying is this was God at work in all sorts of ways, recovering what had been lost. The fourth thing was the rise of what theologians called neo-orthodoxy. But this is really means theologians saying, we've got to recover orthodox Christian doctrine. And the fifth thing was, it was what we might call revivalism. And we, think of, uh, we can think here of the so-called Korean Pentecost, which was in the first decade of the 20th century, uh, 700 years ago, a huge spiritual awakening in Korea, uh, in South India, and in Wales. In, and uh, those things had their own mission input, sending people all over the world. Revivalism. So these are various things that happened to counter the threat of abandoning the faith. And the fading church was becoming a flourishing church once again. So that now, there are far more believers per head of population in the world now than there were 100 years ago. Far more. It's in far more nations than we were 100 years ago. It's remarkable what God's done in 100 years. And we can be still part of it. Amen? Amen. So, uh, in verse 15 to verse 18, Paul talks to... Uh, to, to Timothy, he tells you, he tells him some personal lament. He says, you know that everybody is in Asia, that's the province in the southwest of what is now Turkey, where Ephesus is. He says, these people in Asia, they all turned away from me, among them Phygelus and Hermogenes. But he contrasts them with, the, with Onesiphorus, who said, may the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. He often refreshed me, he was not afraid of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched me eagerly and found me. In other words, he, he, he rocked up to the prison in Rome and said, I don't care if, if I'm seen associated with a convicted prisoner here, someone who's in trouble, I'm going to come and, and refresh you and find you. And he, Paul says, may the Lord grant him to find mercy for the Lord on that day. You well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So Paul was abandoned by most of the Christians who lived in the, in the area around Ephesus where he spent so many years preaching the gospel. But a few of the people like Anesiphorus uh, heard about his trouble and came all the way to Rome to find him. 
and to bless him and to help him and to encourage him. A flourishing church remembers its friends. It refreshes the weary. It visits those in prison. It helps the suffering believers and identifies with them. It cheers them up. Paul said, Anesiphorus cheered me up. He refreshed me. A fading church is gloomy. A flourishing church is gloriously gleeful, if I can put all those GL words together. Uh, and cheerful. A fading church forgets to serve. A flourishing church finds mercy in the day of judgment. Last. First verse of chapter 2. Look at the first words there. You then, or you therefore, he says, my child. Chapter 2, verse 1. Given all that I've said in chapter 1 here, what about you too? He says, you be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. A fading church grows weak. A flourishing church finds strength in Jesus. But listen, verse 2 is important. What you've heard from me before many witnesses in trust of faithful people who will be able to teach others also. Listen, a fading church forgets its fundamentals and keeps its knowledge to itself. A flourishing church finds someone to pass on the truth to and it multiplies through the generations. This is really important. Think about, Paul says, you heard from me. Hope this is Paul, Timothy. Timothy's find faithful people who can teach others. That's four generations right there of multiplication. My question, my final question then to you today is who are you passing on the truth, the good deposit of God? Who are you passing on the truth to? You've got to find someone. Listen, you've got to find someone and it does not matter how old or young you are. If you're going to fade or flourish, right? The fading church neglects to pass on what we've been given from God to future generations. A flourishing church finds someone to give it on to. Great to hear about BBS this morning, right? Uh, great. Find someone to pass on what God has given you to. Don't neglect the gift that God has given you. Don't hide the good treasure, the deposit of truth that he's given you. Find someone to pass it on. I don't care how old or young you are or whether in the middle. You can find someone. Preferably find a non-Christian and tell them the good news. But even within the, the, the orbit of the church, find someone that you can invest in. And my question is, who are you currently investing in? In the gospel. Listen to me. Answer this for yourself, I'm not going to ask you out loud, but listen, answer this question. Who are you currently investing in and giving them what God has given you and using your gifts for? Is there anybody like that in your life? And if there is not, that's something to change pronto, quickly. It's very important. The Lord has given you so much. He's given you a deposit of truth. He's given you the gospel. And that gospel is so precious we cannot keep it to ourselves. Amen? Don't be afraid. The spirit of God that's been given to you is not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed of it. Pass it on. Find someone more than one is better. Right? 
Paul tells Timothy, find faithful people. Paul is not just writing to Timothy. We know he's writing to all sorts of other churches. and you know, Don't just find one. Find some people that you can pass on now, this year, this week, this month, what God has given you. Just do it. Find some people to invest in and give them the deposit of the gospel, the deposit of truth that God has given you. This means if and if we do this, guess what? We won't be a faithless church. We won't be a failing church. We will be a flourishing church because we not only, we don't forget who we are, we don't forget what God has done. We remember and we renew and rekindle and revive what God has done and pass it on to future generations and the nations. Amen? Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the wonderful wonders of the gospel. What God has done in Christ saved us and called us with a holy calling. We thank you for the incredible truth of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Father, in Jesus' name I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you, your spirit would fill them with power, love, self-control. That your spirit would embolden them, not to be ashamed of the gospel, and not to be afraid of the culture around them and of what people think, but to be bold in the gospel and to remember all that you have done and who you are. Not to forget, but to remember and to, re to rekindle the gifts that you've given them and to look outward, to invest in the lives of others, to find people that they can share with and invest in and pass on the truth to who can then go and teach the truth to others. Father, in Jesus' name, make this a church that invests in the nations and the generations to come. And make each person, give each one here today, someone or some people to whom they can invest in, pass on the truth to, just like Paul is doing to Timothy that Timothy has to do to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. And I pray that you would, and I thank you for what you've done here already, Lord, and I pray you would make it even a flourishing church, not fading away to obscurity, but flourishing and changing the nations and the nation and the generations in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.